welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 62nd episode. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, today we also have a very special guest joining us on the show once again. Many of you would be familiar with the name Joey Cantlin. And Joey did recently join us on the podcast. Well, I guess not recently. He was on episode 25 back in June of 2019. So we thought we'd get him on again, you know, and see what has been up with him for the past half year. So thanks for joining us again, Joey. No worries, guys. Thanks again for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Mm, Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on again. So yeah, tell everyone and tell us what have you been up to since June last year? Well, um, not a hell of a lot. I mean, I've, I've done a few trips regarding to work and that kind of stuff, but I mean, still coaching, still doing a bit of study. And that, I guess that's something I've done differently is I've undertaken um, studies in my postgraduate diploma um, in performance nutrition. So that's that's been something different I've been doing, I guess. But outside of that, not a hell of a lot of different stuff, just working as usual. And are you, are you learning anything new from the um, diploma that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. It's more centered around, so it kind of goes outside what I usually do day to day, which is mostly body composition manipulation for contest prep athletes and the general population. This focuses more on um, sporting athletes and identifying problems within current structures with them and then learning how to build around that solely per, for performance or sports performance. So it's been wow. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that you're going to be able to apply any of those learnings to, you know, your current line of work with your contest prep athletes? I think maybe a small amount. There's there's going to be some that is going to be applicable, but I think like 70% of it, it's, it's centered very solely around performance athletes, like, Mm -hmm. um, like sports, sports people and like Olympic athletes, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So like maybe carbohydrate loading for endurance runners that sort of stuff or focus a lot on endurance kind of stuff yeah Mm -hmm. cool yeah yeah well still i think the from our experience as well like once you sort of have that foundation of even different sort of knowledge it's easier to apply it to other areas and um just it's always great to have a um, better foundation of info yeah i totally agree I, i i think it's really interesting and like a lot of the a lot of the data, like for example, a lot of the data that we have available for things like carbohydrate loading, it is on endurance athletes. We don't necessarily have it with bodybuilders and that's it's kind of the next best thing, right? Yeah. 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 Well, it should certainly be interesting as well. You know, if you ever get a contest prep athlete who, you know, is involved in other sports as well. So hopefully you can apply some of that too. Yeah, absolutely. And and even myself, I'm, I'm getting back into a bit of sport this year. So it's been interesting in learning how to apply that to a bit of basketball yeah back into my basketball and i'm hoping to go back to playing afl as well so damn that's exciting and uh and joey so we know that you know this last year back in 2019 you did have the opportunity to travel over to india as a judge for icn so can you tell us a bit about that yeah absolutely it was it was a really um really interesting experience um Big shout out to Jay Achara for uh, he's the ICN India president for having me over there. Um, they did a really good good job in facilitating the event, running the event, um, and obviously looking after everyone they took over to help them. So um, big shout out to those guys. But it was yeah, it was a really interesting experience, like seeing um, the differences in I don't know, I guess how they approach things with with the way they conduct themselves at their own shows. Um, versus what it's like in Australia, and obviously the the difference in standard in the physique, the physiques in each res- respective divisions, um, and seeing how it you know compares to back here it was it was really interesting because it is very different. And maybe go into a bit more depth because we're interested as well. Yes, yeah, like would you, do you, did you get any sort of insight into the coaching practices there? And I guess I'm interested in the physique differences. Yeah, I think. The the difference in the coaching aspect or from what I was able to pick up is they may be they may be like four to six years behind what we are in terms of the the um the application of evidence based practice. So I still heard a lot of them talking about, you know, bro methods and stuff like that. Mm. Um, 
So I'd say, you know, you think back to what the industry was like maybe four to six years ago where it was maybe 70, 30, bro, to, um, you know, like evidence-based practice. And I'd say mm -hmm. continue to pick up over there, but it was a little bit different in that sense. Um, I think the biggest the biggest difference over there is because Indians just genetically, they are smaller people. Mm. So you look, you look at these guys on stage and you're like, wow, this guy's incredible. He's massive. Anyway, you do the division at intermission, you know, you jump backstage and you chat to some of the athletes, man, they're tiny, <laughs> huge on stage because they have, um, they have such small joints, small structures. So even just a little bit of muscle on them makes them look jacked. And yeah. they they may be like you know very small, but they're very very well put together. Like like especially those men's physique guys. Like wow, like really narrow hips, tiny waist, broad shoulders. Like it was it was crazy. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's incredible. It really goes to show, yeah, how bodybuilding surely is an illusion <laughs> sport. <laughs> Big time, and we we had like we actually had a hard time judging some of those classes, like. It was it was a much smaller show than obviously what we get over here in Australia, and um, the the majority of the numbers were in the male divisions. The female divisions were a lot smaller, and like the standard is still it's still growing, so it's not quite there. But like especially the men's physique division, it seems to be very popular there because the guys are smaller by default. It was it was really impressive, and I think some of those guys, if they came over to here, they would they would cause some problems. <laughs> they'd, they'd, they'd give us they'd give us a run yeah we'll have to watch out when the next icn worlds i guess yeah absolutely i think um that's something they're trying to they're trying to get more involved in as well as they're trying to get a team together and get to bigger events and you know stuff like that i know that jay's got quite a few things in the pipeline um trying to organize a few more shows over there and make it a little bit more popular and make bodybuilding you know a bit more of a thing over there and I think yeah. once once he has, you know, we'll see a lot more of them, which is good. Yeah, yeah it's so awesome to see it expanding. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible to see ICN expanding into other countries. And hopefully, you know, that does open up more opportunities for coaches like yourself, you know, to get travel opportunities <coughs> to go over to these other countries and experience it. Yeah, absolutely. It's always like it's not just great for, you know, the athletes, but like you said, coaches, they're going to have um, an even wider reach now. You know, you've got more and more countries popping up, getting into bodybuilding and stuff like that. So as well as crossing over to different countries and competing. So we, we take a lot of Australians now into America mm -hmm. and that gives coaches more reach into America. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it's good. The, the sport is like going to India just really reiterated the fact that the sport is growing at a pretty crazy rate. Mm. Yeah, and I will never forget that photo that you posted on your Instagram with that cow on the street. That was just crazy. <laughs> yeah, that that blew my mind. Um, and that, believe it or not, that photo was about twenty meters from the beach. Wow! <laughs> like there, there was cows walking on the beach. It, it was incredible. But I, yeah, I yeah, guess they, it's they very eye opening. They, they don't eat them over there. They're like a sacred animal or something like that. So yeah, I've always thought if I was a cow, India would literally <laughs> be heaven. <laughs> Yeah, they, they look uh, they look after them. But yeah, they're everywhere. They're just walking around and doing their thing. A lot of um lot of stray dogs and cats as well. Um I even saw a few pigs walking around. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so our next question uh, coming up is basically in terms of your personal and goal personal goals and goals for team HFS as well. So whether you have any things planned for this year or any specific goals you're working towards. Yeah, well myself Personally, obviously, a goal of mine is to um, wrap up that postgraduate diploma study and get um, get an accreditation through that. That uh, and gives gives me the opportunity to eventually go on and apply um, to do a master's degree as well. Um, whether or not I'll go down that road in the future, I'm not sure yet, but it's always nice to sort of have that opportunity there if I do decide to go for it and I want to further expand my knowledge on that. Um, so that's a personal goal of mine in terms of business goals and stuff like that it's not really changing much this year um my goal is still you know to work with all my athletes and you know give them the best of what i can give um and continue to get people ready for shows in, in the most healthy and efficient way possible mm, awesome and you you mentioned earlier in the episode that you 
um, were transitioning into uh, different sports and has your training changed as, as a result of that and is that do you have any goals in that sort of realm re- regarding your training well, i mean like me getting back into the sport this year it's a bit um it's more social than anything i mean i'm definitely not not going to be able to chase like <laughs> or anything back in the day i was i was quite good with my sport but now it's more so i just want to relive the old days and do something a little bit different um so yeah my training has changed um i do more um i favor higher intensity stuff and cardio based stuff a little bit more that's not to say that i don't do my my strength training because that's still very important um but there is a lot more cardio involved and it it did require me to take a step take a small step back from the amount of strength strength training i was doing and also lose some weight too um i hadn't moved the way i was moving and eight to nine years and I was just getting terrible, terrible shin splints and sore ankles. So I did, um, I did have to drop a bit of weight. And once I did, like it, it helped immensely. Um, mm. Still a work in progress, getting completely pain-free, but losing weight was, was an initial step. Body composition did have to change. And I think anyone, anyone that's done bodybuilding and like an endurance-based sport will tell you probably the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I can testify myself. There's no way I could go and do a endurance based sport right now without <laughs> being in pain. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think like it's 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 like what the the talent you have with sport, like it, it's fifty percent um, of you know the skill talent, but it's also fifty percent of how you're able to move and your athleticism and that like the crossover is just too it's too complicated from a bodybuilder to doing endurance sports is just way too different. So, yeah, yeah that, I guess that's why we don't we don't see basketballers looking like bodybuilders or <laughs> bodybuilders looking like basketballers. It's mm-hmm. when you when you try and do both, you realize you, you start to realize the importance of specificity. Yeah. Well, I think that's wonderful, you know, because you are a coach who's primarily involved with physique athletes, you know, who are pretty much just doing resistance training, but you yourself, you're much more open-minded, you know, given your own goals to this more endurance side based training yourself. Yeah. Big time. I just think, you know, it doesn't hurt to try something different. I know that's something I really enjoyed back in the day. And, you know, I've been in the bodybuilding industry now for, geez, it's probably been about six years now. So, you know, trying to teach yourself to change your thinking from, you know, trying to get bigger, trying to get stronger, to then trying to get, you know, more explosive, but at the same time get smaller and then be fit enough to be able to meet the, you know, the cardio-based demands of your given sport. Yeah. Well, heck, I guess with all this concurrent training, it almost goes back to the very beginning of the episode. I think you're going to primarily be able to apply your learnings to yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And like whilst most of that is nutrition, it's still it's still very valuable in terms of you know how you can support um, your performance better with your nutrition. Mm-hmm. Mm. And Joey, I'm actually really interested. You know, with your line of work, could you just give the listeners and Jack and I, you know, a, like a rundown of your daily setup or your average routine? How do you manage, you know, all of your online clients, in-person clients, your own personal sporting endeavors? How do you do it? Um, well, every day is different for me because obviously, as you mentioned, I do, um, face-to-face training as well. So my schedule differs quite a lot. Generally, I'll have like quite a busy day on Monday and Friday. They're my bigger online check-in days. And then I'll have clients check in on subsequent days throughout the week, but it's a lot easier to work around. And then I'll have very, very busy days in the gym on the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and sometimes a Saturday morning. So generally, I just try and pick and choose my times where I'm going to be most efficient in each area. And obviously, I try and train where I can. I try and get my practice in whenever I can. And obviously, you know, I play when I play. So it's, you know, you know, get a bit of study in when I can too. Generally, I have to dedicate a good four to six hours on one day of the week or sometimes two um, just to get like a good amount of that done because as I'm sure you guys know, having been through university, whilst it's not exactly the same thing, you can't just do an hour of study and stop. You have to sit down. <laughs> you've got to do 
a good amount of time. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of just, it's weird. I kind of just go with the flow. I'm pretty, I'm pretty chilled. I know a lot of people have strict routines and whilst my schedule is based on a very you know, mild routine, things do change a lot. And when in this line of work, you have to learn to adapt. Mm-hmm. And you just got to go with the flow. Yeah, especially when other people's schedules are changing and I think exactly. yeah, you're not you're not working for someone else. You're so like I think it works for us as well, setting our own schedule and it might change yeah. every few weeks, but yeah, as long as we know what it is, it works. Yeah, and I think it's really important to be able to adapt and not let, you know, a, a small change in your routine just stress you out because if everything is planned down to the half an hour or the hour and something small changes, it can mess everything up and that can cause a lot of people, you know, a lot of anxiety. So it's good to be a little bit flexible and just at the end of the day, get it all done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the ability to adapt and or the ability to adapt to change, especially in things like your schedule and your life, you can cross that over to bodybuilding as well. Like you have to be able to adapt to different situations. You never know what's going to happen. So, yeah, it's yeah. You got to you got to learn to go with the flow big time. Yeah. So our next question is a hypothetical one. So if you do decide to compete again, and maybe you want to touch on that quickly as well, do you think you would have any other coach or person, individual in your corner to consult with and discuss your prep and get their advice, or would you do it solo? Do you think? I think it would be 50-50, I think, for, and I think most people would probably agree with this, that they could do maybe 60 to 70% of the prep on their own. But uh, I'm, I'm of the belief that I don't really care what anyone says. I don't believe that anyone could do it 110% themselves from the start to the finish. At some point, you're going to need a different set of eyes. You're going to need someone to calm you down because – we all know, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners, because they're probably involved in bodybuilding if they're listening to this podcast, they know that at the back end of a prep, you you get you 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 change. You get <laughs> anxious, you don't you don't see things objectively, so you need a different set of eyes and you you usually need someone to adjust the plan because you know you can you can emotionally make bad choices. <laughs> I think uh, we can certainly relate to that right now because I'm just over two weeks out from my first competition and coaching myself. I don't think if I didn't have Jack here. Yeah, you're right. I (laughs) got a little bit cuckoo. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I think a lot of people who like do prep themselves. I think they they still do have a different set of eyes at some point in their prep. Um, I, I know coaches and friends who have prepped themselves before but at the end they've always you know either asked my advice or asked someone else's advice and I think it may it makes you a better bodybuilder or Mm. physique athlete whatever you want to call it it makes you better by having more support so I guess in answer yeah I I would I would definitely have some someone in my corner I've um prepped twice now and both times I've done it through a coach and Next time I'd probably do, you know, like maybe the majority of my work, of the work myself. However, I would definitely have someone in my corner, you know, calling the shots if I thought it was, if, if I thought I was getting a little bit out of hand. <laughs> Even the best bodybuilders in the world, they, they still will struggle to make those, those tough decisions at crunch time. Yeah, absolutely. You can't isolate yourself. Yeah, you always have to be open to, um, still taking yet yeah, like critical advice from other people too, depending on whatever you choose to do with it, still listening. Yeah. Big time, big time. So yeah. true. And, um, and Joey, you know, do you have any plans for competing in the future? Do you think, has it trickled upon your mind? Well, like sort of halfway through last year, my training was like going really well. And I actually did consider getting back up on stage this year. Um, but then I started to sort of dabble in uh, my sport a little bit more and I was really enjoying it. And then um, I did go on a like a almost three-week vacation. Um, obviously did have a bit of work there to start with, but me and my um, girlfriend, we, we travelled a bit of America and obviously being on a holiday, it makes it a lot harder. Um, ultimately, I decided not to do it this year, um, but like I'll definitely do it again at some point. 
Um, whether it's next year or the year after, it'll definitely happen. But right now, I'm just enjoying my sport a bit too much. And <laughs> yeah, you can't really do both if you want to be good at either. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good call, you know, and the stage will always be there. It's definitely not going anywhere. So just when the time's right for you. Absolutely. That's that's the same thing I say to everyone is that don't 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 be in a rush to get up there because if anything, it's only getting more popular. So, you know, you wait a year or two that you're gonna have more shows to choose from. You you might have more resources available to have a more successful prep, you know. Um, yeah. So for anyone listening, please don't be in a rush. Mm. yeah never be pressured into competing because it's it's such a huge huge decision like health wise financially yeah time as well yeah huge investment it is absolutely and um i just on this topic i'm just interested you know when you say having someone in your corner do any specific individuals come to mind um yeah i guess like i would probably like like obviously i have a pretty pretty close circle of you know, other coaches around me. So people like um, Alex Thomas from Sports Nutrition Australia, he's a very good friend of mine and he's not necessarily so deep into the physique side of things, but he does know his stuff. Um, obviously, my previous coach, Evan Godby, um, and my previous coach before that, Glenn Kelly. And then obviously the, the guys that I present alongside with um, at some seminars. So uh, Kyle Weber, and Brandon Kempter as well. They're both great coaches, and they they both have a good eye for detail. And of course, uh, my body, my buddy um, Leon Stensholm up at the Sunshine Coast. Mm-hmm. So I've got a good network of people that I can refer to if absolutely needed. So yeah, that's certainly a great group of people. Yeah. All right, so Joey. So pretty much looking back on 2019, are there any? big learning takeaways that you think you can apply to this next year of either coaching or just your own life? Well, I think the biggest thing I learned is just how fast this sport is growing. Like, and that, that obviously changes a lot of things, you know, it opens the door to a lot more shows. Um, it opens the door to a lot more people to want to do shows. Um, so I guess something that I had to get better at in 2019 because I did get so busy with trying to manage so many competitors was learning to adapt and working around your schedule like we like we spoke about earlier. Um, obviously, programming around traveling as well to shows. Um, that's something that I've had to become, you know, relatively good at in the last couple of years because I, I do have a lot of competitors now that will travel interstate but mostly travel internationally as well, um, which is a whole different kettle of fish because you've got changes in time zones You've got long haul flights and I'm sure you guys know all the effects that can, you know, be created on a flight or changes of time zones and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So I'd say that was something that probably I've had to really learn more about in the last couple of years. But yeah, just in general, how fast this sport is growing. Like, it's just crazy. Like, I, I think I remember like five years ago when I entered like my first couple of clients in shows, there was like 20 girls in the bikini lineup and everyone was like, oh, my God, this is getting out of hand. Like, this is just crazy. This is way too many people. And now it's, buddy, eight classes and 20 divisions of that. So it, it's growing at a rapid rate. Yeah. I remember Jason saying that uh, in 2019, they completely smoked the record for the number of competitors at, at the Queensland show. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. And and like not only are the numbers growing, but the standard is just growing as well. So, you know, as a coach, if you're if you're a coach in today's era, you you need to be educating yourself and you need to be you need to almost have a mentor because if you want your clients to be competitive, they they've really got to bring it because mm. like some of the competitors these days are, are crazy. And when you when you think you're really good, you go to another show and then you realize you're not. <laughs> yeah. You have to take a step back try again so yeah as because yeah as the more fast the sport grows i guess the the high level of competitors and then it's kind of kind of like an exponential effect how it keeps getting better and better every single year yeah well you've you've got people coming out of the woodworks who didn't even know they had good genetics and they've never lifted a weight they lift weights for six months and all of a sudden they look like a bloody national champion (laughs) so with with more with a bigger volume of people you've got more of those people who just have 
those crazy genetics, you know, coming out of nowhere. And, so. you know, Joey, given that, you know, you've sat on quite a few judging panels for AWNBS and ICN, you know, tell us a little bit about being on that judging panel, because obviously if the competitors are moving the sport to such a higher standard, are you guys judging off a specific criteria or are you purely just looking at it with your eyes and just going off certain things and just discussing it with one another? Can you give us some insight into that? Yeah, sure. Well, obviously judged for quite a few federations now multiple times and um i can tell you it's actually a really hard job um a lot of people like to point the finger and blame judges and carry on like pork chops you know we've all seen it and heard it and i'm sure everyone who listens to this at some point has disagreed with the decision at some point but they have a really tough job because you can't please everyone and only one person can come first one thing i i always say is just because you didn't win, it doesn't mean you don't look good. Sometimes you've just got someone that shows up who has never competed before, but already looks like they've been a pro for 10 years. That's going to happen. Um, and unfortunately that's just the case and it doesn't mean you don't look good, but we always, we always do judge off a, um, a select criteria. Yes. And it's all, all about picking the person who is closest to that criteria or who ticks the most boxes. Now, of course, you're going to get divisions where everyone is outside the criteria and no one's really there. So then again, you have to go with who is the closest to it. You know, like it's it's the age-old argument for bikini. If you get one girl show up who's really, really lean, but then you get 10 other girls who show up who are really, really soft and they're both outside the criteria, well, which direction do you go? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, the t- they're the type of hard decisions that you have to make. But yeah, like, and, and so much more goes into it than what people think. Like, you know, when, you, when you're deciding between, say, first and second and then second and third, it could be, and I'm sure Jason has said this at some point on the podcast, it can be the tiniest thing, especially with the female divisions because they, the, the criterias do take into account, you know, overall beauty and how you coordinate your makeup and your hair with your bikini colour and the colour of your body so you're tan and you're posing. And different judges also like different things. So that makes it even harder. So, you know, there's always lengthy discussions. Um, I've judged on some panels which work off a point system. So there's no discussion and you simply just enter points for who you think is the best or closest. Which do you think, which do you favor, the point system or the discussion? I think both have their pros and cons. Um, I think discussion could potentially induce you know, poor decisions because other judges might be swayed by other judges Mm. into making a decision that they might not necessarily agree with. Um, But the point system can also produce some really strange outcomes because, like I said, some judges prefer different looks or different sort of physiques or some judges might want to favour condition more versus muscularity and symmetry. Um, So I think... Like, at the end of the day, it's never perfect, and there's pros and cons to each, but, yeah, the judges, having judged as much as I have now, they have a really hard job. Mm-hmm. And this might be a tough question, but do you have any sort of tips for, I guess, catching the judges' eyes when you walk on stage, or do you think it's purely the judges are going to see you? Because, like, sometimes I do notice that there is maybe, because I'll always compare it to bodybuilding, but, like, there'll be a guy who has a great physique, but he sort of just fades, fades in. And like you, you, there are maybe two or three guys that stand out completely. Yeah. Well, I think like things like posing and, um, I'll start with the females first. So making sure your posing is very fluent and your hair and your makeup and your bikini are all flawless. That's a really, really good way to stand out. Um, obviously you can stand out in the wrong way as well is if your bikini colour just doesn't doesn't go with your look. But posing, I find, is the biggest one. If someone's posing really well, even if their physique is not 100% there, they'll still catch the attention of the judges because I know that as a judge, it's, it's, it's really hard to look at someone when their posing is very bad. It just feels mm. awkward. Yeah. So you don't look there, but... You want to look at someone and feel comfortable. And if you're looking someone at someone who's posing really well, then yeah. 
Um, and having a point of difference on your physique as well always helps. You know, girls walk out in fitness or sports model and just have like, they might have these massive shoulders or these unbelievably conditioned quads. Um, so points of difference help a lot as well. Whilst one body part is not necessarily going to win you a show because there are a lot of other body parts and poses, it does help to have either one really, really good pose or a standout body part and make sure you show it off. Mm. And I guess I guess that comes down with posing as well, making sure you know how to pose to your strengths and hide your weaknesses because everyone has weaknesses, but everyone has strengths. Yeah. I was just going to say, and it's the same with the guys, you know, if you've got you've got a standout body part make sure you show it off you know if you're if you're unbelievable from the back first thing you do when you get out on stage is turn to the back and show the judges your back and they're probably going to write down your number because they're going to oh wow that's the guy with the great back i guess Um, that's been a kind of controversial um in a few shows how like looking straight away at the glutes and then basing that off oh this guy's a lot bigger this guy has better glutes absolutely and I think I think it's good to show your, your your points of strength to the judges just to get that look in and get some attention on you. But at the same time, I, I it's I know what you mean. You know, striated glutes shouldn't win you a show. Um, you know, if you're the only one that has them and you do have fifty percent of everything else, then yeah, like you'd probably be able to win it. But like I said, like you can have one great body part, but you could suck everywhere else. And yeah, this notion that when once someone has striated glutes, it's over, and it, it couldn't be further from the truth, you know. I think everyone will any person that comes to my mind right now is definitely Damo Tut. <laughs> oh yeah, he's see Damo was impressive everywhere though. Like he was exactly yeah. all over. <laughs> I, I remember watching him at um the the Queensland State Championships. It was it was him in the overall and uh, Charlie, I think it was. Yeah, Charlie Sumer, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I thought that could have gone either way because Damo had the muscularity and he had the condition. But then Charlie just had this unbelievable shape. Mm-hmm. And, like, his, his waist was so narrow and his muscle bellies were, were so nice. Ultimately, they went they, they went the bigger and the leaner guy, which I, I think at the end of the day it was probably the right decision. Yeah, yeah. makes um, sense. But when, when you look – like, that's what I mean. When you look at two, two people who possess such – you know, great qualities, but they're so different. It's kind of like, all right, well, you know, which way do we want to go here? And yeah, you, you yeah. see, you see it a lot. That would be tough. You know, have you, have you yourself ever? We don't have to name names, but have you yourself ever experienced, you know, any backlash from someone in the crowd? If you're on the panel and you make a call, and someone's like, "My daughter should have won." <laughs> Not necessarily backlash, but I do get questions as to say, like. You know, oh, I thought this person would have won, you know, why? And if, if you're a good judge or at least a credible judge, you'll be able to answer that question with great detail immediately, which is what I've been able to do all the time. And it's the same, like, if you, you've got to be able to provide good feedback as well. Um, you know, if someone asks you for your feedback and you, you can't give them good feedback, you didn't do your job. Mm-hmm. And, like, I, can, I could still, I could probably still think back to maybe 24 months ago if someone had asked me, Oh, I did that show. I will probably remember them. You've got you've got to have your eyes peeled because you're gonna get questions like that all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally have a notepad and I write everything down about competitors. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, especially when it's such a subjective sport, people are always gonna be looking for like not just to say why didn't I get first, but also what can I improve on for next time. Absolutely. And like people also need to remember, or at least understand and remember let's say you have five people on a judging panel, it takes the majority of that to make a decision. So three out of the five people thought you should have won, you're going to win. So it's, you know, people say like, oh, bias, you know, this person did posing with that person or this person coaches that person. It, you're like one person doesn't get a sway over five people. I can tell you that right now. It has to be a majority vote. So... Yeah, like what, whatever show you go to or whatever show you watch, you should always, you know, have a bit more respect for the judges if, if you usually don't because they, they have a hard job and whilst they, they make a lot of people's dreams come true, they also have to crush a lot of people's dreams. So There yeah, are more dreams crushed than... There is. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah, no, I know what you mean. And as much as, you know, everyone would be happy with, you know, 
coming second, like, wow, second's awesome. You know, I play so high. Everyone wants to win. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it's a really hard job. Yeah, amazing. I think that is such an important message for everyone to hear. Yeah. So we'll move into some more, I guess, specific questions now. And this first one's pretty interesting. We'll be interested to hear your thoughts on it. It's from Lawrence. And he asks, what are your thoughts on using timed posing during a prep as a caloric output tool? Yeah, I'm, I'm for it. I think that's fine. Um, the only thing I will say is that it's going to differ between a lot of people because you're going to have people who have never posed before. And it's going to be more timely and it's going to be more lengthy. So maybe you have to account for that in your nutrition and your training because it's going to be a little bit harder to recover. Um, but, yeah, I, I, think it, I think it's a good tool, um, especially if you're someone experienced. Say, like, all right, we're rolling through the first half of the prep. We're getting to the back end. All right, let's start practicing your posing now. We'll use that as your cardio. And, like, as you get closer to a show, you should probably practice more anyway. So it can serve as a good... Um, additional caloric expenditure i guess if you want to put it that way and if you're posing if you're posing properly and posing hard it's 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 hard to work even, out for sure yeah yeah even even the you know even if you're competing in bikini and you don't necessarily have to hold muscularity poses it's hard like i mean i personally don't get around in heels but i can, <laughs> I can only imagine how taxing it is on on your calves yeah, and, up on those toes the whole time. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, I, I get some of my girls posing here in the gym and it's it's quite hot. And, you know, after half an hour, they'd, they'd be sweating. Like, it, it's a bit of a workout. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I'm going to say, yeah, I think it's a, it, it's a viable strategy. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting strategy. I guess it would just be about making sure that um, you're able to quantify, you know, and estimate yeah. how much energy you might be expending doing that or just keeping it consistent making sure that you are spending half an hour you know four times a week five times a week doing that posing just to keep that consistent in your routine yeah that is the one point i was going to make is it, it is a little bit harder to quantify than your traditional cardio because you know one day you might practice a routine then the next day you might practice your symmetry poses then your muscularity poses and you almost have to come up with a practice routine to make sure it's consistent every time. Mm -hmm. And um, Joey, I've got a question for you. So obviously right now, you know, you work for yourself, you have your own business, but you know, in the future, do you have any goals or plans regarding HFS, uh, you know, in terms of expanding your company, potentially taking on more coaches? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, I've given it a lot of thought and the, the thought of taking on coaches did cross my mind, but I, I I was always a little bit hesitant to do it just because, you know, I do work hard and I've I've worked hard to build my build my reputation and my business and I know it's maybe like a negative way of thinking, but it would just be so easy for someone to swoop in and like, you know, destroy it with one silly action. And I, I understand it can go both ways, but I've seen it go bad more often than I haven't. Um so in regards to taking on coaches, I probably wouldn't think about that until the future. Um, in terms of where I want to take it, I think like I would, I would like to work more with um, some performance-based athletes, so those who compete in sports and stuff like that, because that's something I'm also really passionate about. So I, I will probably open in, open my doors to doing something like that a little bit more. But I will always be doing bodybuilding coaching, I believe. Um, and it's pretty pretty hard to get out once you're in as well. <laughs> yeah, hard to take yourself. Yeah. It's it's it like it's just such it's just so interesting seeing seeing what the human body can do and watching it evolve and you know helping someone achieve that achieve something that they never thought they would be able to do because it's a very hard endeavor as you guys know. So I think I'll always do that. But yeah, maybe look more towards um, you know sports performance or doing a little bit more of that as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, I couldn't agree more, you know, watching someone go on that journey and compared to other practitioners, you know, you don't just see someone, you know, just once or twice or something like that for a consultation, you're seeing them for months and potentially even years on end and watching them transform, which is just incredible. Cool. So the, uh, the next question is again from Lawrence and he is asking, what is the upper limit you would prescribe for someone in terms of number of daily steps? 
I guess, in a maybe discriminating between an improvement season and, and a prep? Yeah. Um, this is an interesting question, actually, um, because I don't think we can quantify with a set number because everyone's expenditure is so different. Like, let's say you work with, you know, a tradie, and they, they might be doing 25,000 steps a day on average. So I guess you would, if you wanted to say like, all right, we're going to bump up your expenditure because they don't want to cut any more food, then, you know, you might have to go up to 27 to 28,000. Now that's a ridiculously high number, but not relative to 25,000. Um, <clears throat> but personally, I haven't worked with anyone who did that much. Um, I think the highest I've made someone go with their steps was up around eighteen to 19,000, but their, their regular daily activity was around eleven to 12 prior to, you know, slowly increasing those. So I think it's all relative, but I, you probably don't want to increase it by more than 100 to 150%, assuming it's around 10,000. Um, I've had some clients who do one to 2,000 steps a day. And that, that's easy. You put them on 5,000 steps and they start just burning, you know, bulk amounts of fat. So it's, it's, I think it's all relative and I wouldn't be able to put a set number on it. But I think once you're adding more than 10,000 um, on top of what you were initially doing, you know, without, you know, voluntarily moving, then I think that's starting to get maybe on the upper limit. Yeah, I think someone's in a unfortunate, unfortunate position if they're low on food and then you want to increase steps and their steps are already high. Like, it's just yeah. not a good place to be. No, and look, some people, especially those, you know, who are quite um, quite adaptive per se or efficient in maintaining their body weight, they're, they're probably going to end up on low calories and, and a higher amount of steps. And it's just so different for everyone. So like I said, it's hard to put a number on it. Some people might have to do things that, like we, we don't really have an instruction manual on how to get someone to dangerously low body fat whilst being able to maximize the amount of lean muscle retention. Um, there's, there's, there's no handbook on that. So it only goes to the point of losing a certain amount of fat. Then you kind of have to throw the manual out because you come across a lot of different cases. And I think any, any good coach would agree. Um, you know, I, I've certainly seen some crazy stuff. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's all relative and we can't put it on it, but, yeah. Based off, I think I can speak for both of us, but because everyone is so different, like if you do want to lose that weight and get to that body fat, sometimes you really do just have to lower calories and or increase yeah. output. Like there's no two ways around it. Yeah, and the, like you, you couldn't have said any better. There is no way around it sometimes. It's, it's all right, well, we either pull the pin and not compete or you get up there looking not there or we we push outside the boundaries for you know a short period of time and we get there and then we get the f out yeah <laughs> yeah you I, just gotta do what you gotta do and that's again it's some that's something i try and push with my practices try and get get to that condition and make sure it's for as short a time as possible and then get the hell out because mm -hmm. It's, you know, the longer you spend there, the greater, the greater damage you do and the longer it takes to recover. So, And, you know, Joey, what's your take on, uh, you know, if you need to increase someone's energy expenditure, would you generally be a bigger advocate for increasing steps or increasing, you know, standard cardio? So someone may be going on an elliptical machine or a rowing machine. And also, if you get them to go on a cardio machine, do you get them to take off like their Fitbit so that doesn't count toward their daily steps? I generally just try to increase steps because I think it's just a little bit easier to track and a little bit easier to manage. Mm -hmm. um, when you start working with um, set amounts of cardio and stuff like that, you know, the amount of time that it would take you to burn 300 calories, for example, at the start of prep versus the end of prep, would be drastically different as you know you know our, the, the rate at which we burn calories uh, becomes a lot lower so i think steps is a little bit more of a I, I guess it's easier to manage but i know some coaches who do it the other way i know some coaches who will measure steps and cardio and then yeah they'll just get them to take their fitbit off um I, that's something i have done 
but for the most part, I will just prescribe steps and try to increase steps. For some people who tend to have an easier time getting leaner than others and they they don't have to diet hard, they don't necessarily have to do any cardio, at times I won't even get them to track steps. It'll just be like, all right, this week, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty close to your condition. Just make sure you're a little bit more active. But for those who actually have a little bit of a harder time, I think it's important to track more variables. Mm-hmm. And um, this topic, you know, is a little bit going way back to probably the middle of the podcast. But you mentioned about, you know, how coaches going overseas, you know, competing with athletes at international shows and how traveling and flying, it really plays a role in that. And it can sometimes, you know, skew your physique a little bit. Over the years, have you kind of come up with a protocol for, you know, how early you want an athlete to arrive in the city of the show in order, you know, for their physique to balance out? Do you manipulate anything, the weight, the amount of water they drink or the food that they eat on the plane? I'm just kind of interested in that. This kind of thing depends on what the athlete is doing because obviously I I can't control their life and I can't tell them when they have to get to another country um, because, you know, it requires them to get time off work and that costs money and stuff like that. I say if you're gonna if you're gonna go internationally and you you want to compete, I would say you probably don't want to get there any later than four days out. Um, in terms of what I manipulate, I generally I have three separate plans. So I'll have a plan for pre-flight, so that day before the flight, I'll set you know macronutrient targets and hydration targets prior to the flight. Then I'll set set targets for the actual flight, and then for X amount of hours following the flight. So I might get them to set a timer and they follow their set plan for that amount of time. And then by, by all that's finished, generally we're lined up to a new day. Um, I'd be sitting here and talking for an hour straight if I delved into all the specifics. But of course. <laughs> I think if, if you break it down into separate times or separate blocks, it makes it a little less overwhelming. I know that flying to America elicits a very big time change. And it's also cool to note that when you go to America, you gain a day. So you could leave four days before the show and still get there four days before the show, which is very handy. Um, but yeah, like things like when, you, when you're flying, generally I will, um, I'll, I'll try and keep calories the same, maybe a little lower, but I will prescribe less carbohydrate because obviously when you're in a flight, you're sitting on your ass the whole time. So. And I just ensure that clients stay as hydrated as possible to minimize as much water retention as possible. Um, I've been lucky enough in the fact that I haven't really come across too many issues with it. I've only really ever had one competitor blow up with fluid retention after a flight, and I've had maybe 30 to 35 athletes fly across the world for shows. But in that case, it settles pretty quick anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess the only reason I asked that question, because I feel it's almost selfishly, but I'm almost notorious for getting cankles on flights. So I'm just like, if I ever need to fly anywhere for an international flight, how the hell do I avoid this? <laughs> yeah, I find like um, staying very hydrated is is important because obviously the um, due to the altitude, you can experience changes in um, air cabin pressure as well. Mm-hmm. And that affects hydration status as well. So I generally just say by default, like, be a little bit more hydrated than usual just in case. And I find people aren't going to have problems with, like, interstate flights, like two to three hours. Generally, nothing happens. Um, I will say maybe in case of complications, get there two to three days before the show. But you'd be pretty unlucky if you ran into any issues. Yeah, so we have... Uh, one from Shane, and I think he does really need some help with this, but he just wants to know how to grow some legs. Couldn't I couldn't think of a better bloke to help. He's got no legs at all. <laughs> um, uh, go train with him. No. Yeah. I think um, it's like with any muscle, like we all have um, sort of genetic limitations first and foremost, and obviously he clearly has absolutely none with his quads. Um, He's even got hamstrings and glutes too, which is just unfair. He's <laughs> um, just got wheels. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. I still remember the first day I saw it. I just couldn't believe it. Like, yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, I would say, like, obviously, it takes time to figure out what um someone's limitations are with um 
max recoverable volume and you know minimum minimum volume required. I think first and foremost, the one of the um, the key aspects is making sure that the person can stick to the plan. Um, I feel like this is probably something that doesn't get talked about enough. So I think exercise selection is actually more important than a lot of people think from purely an enjoyment standpoint. If you can't enjoy your training, there's a good chance that you're not going to be as consistent or you're not going to stick with it. So I think mm -hmm. first and foremost, you need to pick movements that you enjoy. Obviously, they need to they need to work. They need to be efficient, but for the most part, enjoyment should be um, you know involved. Obviously, train for a long time and focus on getting stronger and don't just stick to your 8 to 12 rep ranges. Do a little bit of sub 5 rep stuff. Get strong. Do a little bit of the high rep sucky stuff, you know, as high as 30 to 40 reps. Um, yeah, just train hard. Get strong. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly simple formula. It just needs to be applied for a long period. And I think that's like what some people don't understand. You can't build shane's legs in a year well you can't build shane's legs full stop but give yourself as long as possible and uh, you know what the crazy thing is you, you look at photos of i think he's 28 or 29 so he's not old but he's not young he's been training for a long time but you look at photos of him before he really got into weight training he was already massive <laughs> like, it was almost like he was just born like that is ridiculous so you know Without, you know, I, I know it's easy for a lot of people to train for, you know, five, six, ten years and not look anywhere near close to that, but that's actually pretty normal. He isn't normal. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, yeah, like you said, it, it's actually quite a simple process. And I was actually speaking to someone about this the other day, is we seem to live in a world where, like, a lot of people are just overcomplicating things. But it's better to, you know, simplify the process a little bit when it's already simple and just get good at being consistent. Um, it's something I spoke about is like coaching is a lot about accountability. It's not about showing someone how hard something is and teaching them how to overcome it. It's, it's making sure that you can set a plan and teach that person to be accountable with it. And I'd say that's how you grow big legs, you know, train hard, strong and do it for that's yeah that's exactly right like there's no joey cantlin doesn't have a magical leg routine which gives you huge quads like <laughs> unfortunately not <laughs> he was he's, he's a bit of a shit he was backstage at icn worlds um after he won he basically won the whole show he didn't win the pro lineup but all these all these um korean dudes were backstage and like oh my god you know how you get, how you get such big legs and he he was telling him that he runs. <laughs> That's evil. <laughs> Come on. But, oh, gosh. Like, that's the thing. Like, they are just so outrageously big and something that, you know, we've never seen before that, you know, you would think there would have to be some secret. But yeah. it's just, this is just one in a million. Absolutely. There's just those people with just those genetics, you know, and – at our gym who has this freaking amazing butt like and I know that if I went up to her I, I could ask her you know like what do you do for your glute training but it's probably nothing out of the ordinary she was probably just born with a ghetto booty something that I will never have <laughs> yeah I, and I mean you know you, you, you even look at some of these people and they're training in an, an incredibly ineffective fashion and they still look the way they do. So I think like a lot of people discount the impact of genetics. Like, you know, you look at, you know, some guys with huge arms and it's like, oh, what's the secret? Well, if, if there was a secret and everyone could achieve that, we would all have big arms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have big arms. And every girl would have a huge set of glutes. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we all have limitations and, you know, Whilst we, we may never sort of reach that, you know, everyone has them. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll just keep trying. <laughs> oh, trust me, I've been trying for years and my, my legs don't even resemble close to that. So. <laughs> I'm with you. Um, okay, so we've got one more <coughs> listener question before we start to wrap things up. And this one says, will the general be getting any diet breaks this prep? Uh, if he's lucky. <laughs> <laughs> he will. Um, last prep, we, we didn't have as much time as we have this time. 
So we didn't necessarily, we, we still did quite frequent refeeds. Um, sometimes we would do two a week. Um, I think there was a couple of times where we did multi-day refeeds, um, but we never got to have a full, you know, one to two weeks maintenance phase. This time he has a much better starting point. We do have a lot more time as well. And obviously that's a big part of improving each time is managing your starting point better and better and better. That way your prep is more and more effective every time you maintain more muscle, you get leaner every time. And yeah, I guess, you know, like I had a pretty high standard for him last time in terms of conditioning. So we had to make sure we got it. And unfortunately that, <coughs> that meant we didn't have enough time to throw in a full one to two weeks maintenance phase. But this time, definitely he can, he can sleep comfortably knowing there's, there's dive breaks coming. Oh, good. I'm, I'm cannot wait to see Lawrence on stage again. Honestly, the amount of effort and discipline that he has put into this past improvement season, like his results have already paid off, you know, but like just to see him lean again on stage, it's going to be damn cannot wait to attend that show. Yeah, he's 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 an incredible competitor, you know, to 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 possess some of the personal qualities that he has as a person at such such a young age is is just incredible. And like a lot of people didn't know him two or three years ago. He was he was like that when I first met him when he was 16. Like he's just such an accomplished young man and speaks speaks so well and he's he's just a good person. So I think he'll be he'll make an exceptional bodybuilder because he possesses all the qualities that make a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's gonna go far. And uh, Joey, we've got one last question for you, which we always finish the podcast on, and that is one interesting thing that you learned this week. This is a good one, actually. It's got nothing to do with bodybuilding, but the past probably two to three weeks, it would. I think it's been two weeks. So let's say let's say it was two weeks ago, two and a bit weeks ago. Kobe Bryant, I'm sure you heard in the news, mm. and his daughter Gianna passed away tragically in a helicopter accident. Um, obviously, being someone who was a who, who is a big fan of uh, basketball and follow a lot of the NBA, you know, I grew up kind of idolizing Kobe Bryant. Um, but what was even sadder is to see, you know, he he only he was only ever a Los Angeles Laker, and you know, in today's NBA, it's rare to see someone stick with the one team for their whole career. And in this case, he was it was twenty years. I guess I learned like it's it's crazy to see how much impact one person can have on not just a city but the world. And I mean, I went I went to LA three days after it happened. And the whole town was like the whole city was just covered in Kobe Bryant stuff. Literally every person you spoke to or met, Kobe Bryant was the first thing that came up. So yeah, I guess I learned that it's it's not unusual for someone to have such a big impact on on the world and the city and leave their legacy. But yeah, a tragic event. But it, it was very interesting to see just how much of a reach he had, not just as a basketballer, but just as a person. You know, he was kind of transitioning into focusing more on his family you know he had um had four daughters one that's like pretty you know new so yeah it's just interesting to see how much impact he had that's just something i learned Mm. yeah i I, neither of us follow basketball but obviously we knew who kobe bryant was and like the just how much of a role model he was yeah that's what i mean like people who don't even give you know two f's about basketball know who he is and know how influential he was you know he, and the, a lot of the messages that he conveyed weren't just about basketball. It was just regarding anything, you know. Always be the last one in the gym, the first one and the last one in the gym. Always do the work that no one is, you know, willing to do. Just work a little bit harder than the next person. You know, we're not, we're not all blessed with talent per se, you know. I think that's something that's God-given in a lot of cases. But we all have the opportunity, especially in our society, to, you know, work as hard and as long as we want towards things so and that's something that he was very good at teaching so yeah crazy yeah it's tragic that the world you know has lost such an amazing role model but it is i'm so glad that everything in his life you know has been recognized and he's um you know really being celebrated yeah big time and yeah it it makes it even worse that he's one of his daughters was with him and she was the one that was going to sort of carry his legacy but um you know, unfortunately, that's that's how the world goes around and tragic things happen sometimes. But, yeah, I think it's just really great that while he was alive, he, he got to sort of deliver, you know, such a great legacy. And, 
He was such a good player for the game. He was a great person. And yeah, that's something I learned was just how how crazy of an impact someone can have um, on just, you know, one city or the whole world and people who didn't even, you know, follow your sport per se. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's a, a good note. Well, not necessarily a good note, but a note to finish up on. Thank you so much again, Joey, for coming onto the podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you on and I'm sure we'll have you on many times again in the future. And to everyone listen, uh, listening, where can they find you on socials? Yeah, no worries, guys. Um, I really appreciate appreciate you guys reaching out and having me on here again. Um, obviously, it was, it was great to be on here for the first time. It's even better to come back again, and I'll always be willing to come back on and you know have a chat and discuss what you guys want to want to discuss at any point in time. So, thank you. If you're looking to find me, you can find me on Instagram at Joey Cantlin PT. Um, you can also find me on Facebook just at Joey Cantlin. If you have any like inquiries or anything like that. Um, my email address is in my Instagram, but it's joeycantlinpt at gmail.com. Um, yeah, if you, if you ever have any questions or want to get in touch for whatever reason, you can find me on my email on my Instagram or, or my Facebook. Fantastic. Yeah, a phenomenal coach, a phenomenal posing coach, and a, a great guy. So, um, so thank you, Joey. And yeah, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Joey, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you next week.